Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me once again, and welcome to 2019. Today, we speak to an old friend of mine, Barb Walsh, who is Senior Lecturer and Program Director at the University of Canberra, and vitally involved in the Program Directorship of the Communication and Media Faculty, where she's also the convener for the Workplace Integrated Learning and also course convener of the Bachelor of Communication in Public Relation. She is a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. She is on the secretary of the New South Wales ACT Committee for the Australian Collaborative Education Network. But prior to being involved in academia, Barb was, in fact, a practitioner. She spent 25 years in PR, um, managing her own uh, consultancies in Sydney for about four years, but then also working at a senior director level in quite a few, actually, um, Australian public service agencies. So she has that broad experience between education and also uh, her time in the public sector. But most interestingly, one of her big tasks when she was in academia was to write a PhD called The Tightrope Walkers, an exploration of the democratic role of public communication in the digital age. Now, that is absolutely bang on relevant for us and we'll come to a conversation about that, but she joins me in the studio now. Barb, thanks for joining us on GovComs. My pleasure, David. Well, listen, um, great career there. Lots of Mm, stuff, the the academic and and the education, the time that you spent managing your own uh, PR agencies, Mm. working in government. What are some of the big takeouts that you have seen just over the last few years really in terms of what's changing and how people are managing this dramatic change that we're all sort of dealing with given as as we move to you know multi-channel environment fragmented communication mm. fragmented attention what are some of the big challenges that you're you're observing well that's a big question it is a big with. question so i think from seeing as i work in the education space now I think that one of the biggest challenges I see in terms of education and or higher education and industry is the integration of those things and ensuring that um, I guess that both under, both undergrad and postgrad students uh, can undertake really relevant um, education while they're um, kind of embedding themselves in industry, if you like. And that's a challenge with it for education, I think, yeah. because it's moved, higher ed is, is moving from a space of, of being a, a bit more isolated to have it to be, a, you know, a lot more porous yes. with industry. Yeah. Um, and that is, um, I think that that's particularly challenging in the comms space. I mean, look, it may be challenging in other spaces and I don't know for, for arts and design um, and certainly for, you know, health industry, uh, disciplines and industries, that's a challenge. But for comms and media, I think it's a particular challenge just because things are changing so fast. Yeah. So uh, It's also a challenge for industry, isn't it, to try to find mm. the opportunities for students to integrate them into their work mm. because they're busy doing the work yeah. and not really set up to be supervisors or, mm. you know, yes, you can have interns that come in and do some work, 
which we have done for many, many years mm. here at Content Group mm. with people mm. from mm. the University of Canberra. But sometimes it's it, it can be um, challenging to give the students exactly what they're looking for or exactly what they need. Sure. And I think that... Um, we're certainly moving towards, well, certainly in our faculty and I know in lots of other universities, we're moving towards more agile means of working to grade learning. So it's not just the internships, it's projects. Yeah. It's it's teams of students working on, um, you know, coming up with solutions to, to you know, difficult or complex problems. Um, so, you know, there's that, there's creative kind of approaches, there's creative lab, there's... Um, uh, you know, there's yeah, studios, there's a whole range of different ways in which I guess academics can work with students to to get to um, integrate them with industry. But I think it's the, the bigger challenge of, well, it, it's that, but it's also it's academics staying on top of the changes in industry. Yeah. So, um, and, and ensuring that they are, they're skilled ahead of the students. Yeah. Uh, and so not just academically, but actually in all the kind of literacies that industry demands. So it's that's why we need to involve industry um, in quite a deep way mm. um, and in a way that benefits everyone, that but benefits industry though, and it, the students and us. You know, the challenge for industry is to stay mm. on top of industry and yes, changes, yes, yes, you know, because exactly. of the dramatic change. Mm -hmm. It is quite difficult mm. Um, mm. To, to stay relevant and I think what we're seeing is it is sort of an increasing move to specialization because mm. because of yes you know the requirement and because of the the depth of knowledge that's required in different areas mm. that you know as opposed to being more generalized as yeah. people were in the past there's you know mm. people are moving towards their specialty um, yes. And so that is also then a challenge for how we teach that, yeah. right? Because um, because the roles are changing and because the, I guess, the strands within the common media industries are expanding. So as as educators, we, so for example, we're changing our degrees at um, in the common media or actually in the whole Faculty of Arts and Design this year. So just to give an example of the changes in the communication and media program. So um, it used to be that we had a Bachelor of PR, say, yep. Bachelor of Advertising, um, Journalism, etc. So now we, we're too small to offer fine strands like that. Um, so where advertising is now marketing communication, uh, PR is now um, corporate and public communication, um, and that includes public affairs and PR. And yep. you know, so it's it's we need to be broader, in fact, but still off enable. Um, I guess, those kinds of specialisations underneath those broad umbrellas. Mm. Um, but it's also, you know, changes like community engagement, like, um, you know, community online management, all of those kinds of things that, that we know our students are going to go out and be working in those kinds of roles. So we need to also try and accommodate those changes mm. um, and those evolving specialisations, if you like. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so it is, it's an interesting space. What's your, and, and just sorry, and before we move on from that, and so how does the university cope with that? How does it, how, how does it move quickly enough to remain mm. relevant enough? And is there demand for these courses that you're, you're designing? Uh, well, look, the, the figures so far for this year are looking very good, um, but I'm not going to give you any figures because they're not definite at this point, but okay. actually it's looking really positive. Right. Um, so so th that's the first thing. The second thing is how do we stay on top of it? So we need to engage with industry constantly. So we need to have our kind of advisory groups where we touch base with industry to say, 
we're teaching this in this unit. Does this make sense to you? You yeah. know, um, or in this program or degree, does this? You know, what are we missing out on, etc. We involve uh, industry people as adjuncts. Um, we involve them as as sessional tutors. We get them in to, to do master classes and workshops, and um, and and we ourselves stay engaged. So um, you know, I'm now on the board of the IABC. Um, yep. uh, so so that is part of my you know role is is comms and media, and that's how I stay engaged with the industry in that way. Right. Um, so you know, another part of my role is the work integrated learning, and so that's why I'm on the collaborative education network, for example. So I think academics need to. Um, stay engaged and involved in professional associations and industry groups like that, so that so that we're forever aware of right. of of changes. Yeah. So just going going back to your um, time, you know, preparing your PhD, where you actually went about and took a very deep dive into this this challenge or an exploration of the democratic role of public sector communication in the digital age and calling it the tightrope walkers. Mm. What what was the sort of central takeaway that, that, that you brought from that PhD, which was completed in, in 2015? And has anything changed in the last few years that would um, perhaps challenge anything that was in that PhD mm. in terms of the the core thesis that you that you uh, explored and revealed? Um, look, I think the environment has changed significantly. Mm. So it, it might have um, been awarded in 2015, but the research right. uh, was around 2011. So, oh, okay. I mean, look how f- long ago yeah, wow. that was. I mean, it's like dog years, isn't it? Yes. I mean, in terms of digital. Yes. Um, and how far... I think the communicators, public sector departments, et cetera, have come since that time. Mm. So um, so back then, way back then, I guess it was um, a case of... Um, and I started the, the PhD in 2010, um, so then was interviewing people in 2011, um, and, and senior people in the APS, in the Australian Public Service. So uh, back then it was really a case of, at the very early stages, what were the challenges mm. for communicators and what were... What was this throwing up for the role of communicators? And that was, I guess, my hunch, having worked in the public service uh, way before that time, maybe around 2000, from 2000 to 2007, mm. say, 2008. Um, I guess social and digital were... Uh, what was a big challenge for communicators in terms of this evolving um, awareness and uh, different ways of, of, of uh, communicating by citizens, different expectations of their institutions, um, and and then how uh, both pub- well public sector departments how they were going to manage that, and how communicators in the middle. The boundary spanners, you know, the the, um, the the ones who are responding to the needs of the public, but they're also juggling the demands of their managers and their senior executives, etc. And they're the ones who are ex- explaining the need for transparency and dialogue and all of those kinds of things, and and quite often up against quite um, entrenched views of of um, senior, you know bureaucracies mm. or senior levels of in bureaucracies about an unwillingness to engage, etc. So I just suspected that it would be a very big challenge for communicators mm. and that that would highlight uh, issues with, public, with, with communications. Mm. Um, and I guess in the conversations with, um, with those senior managers, um, a, a, a lot was revealed in, in that regard in terms of um, 
that, yes, the evolving demand for transparency from citizens was a challenge for, for communicators. Um, it required them to be um, to have a lot of agency within their departments, to have a, a lot of credibility um, to be listened to by senior managers and to, to um, or, you know, senior levels of bureaucracy um, and to, I guess, um, yeah, to be able to argue the case to embed social media channels um, among, in, in the suite of, of, uh, of channels that the department was using. Yeah. Um, so, so, yes, it was, I guess what I came out with, I, I, you ask about the central kind of thesis, if you like, is that really the way that that all played out, um, that, that social media and the use of social is, is, a, is like a litmus test of um, how communicators are, how they do their jobs and how they're allowed to do that or have the capacity to do their jobs in, the, in, in departments. Um, and, and that then also reflects the, I guess, the, the the democratic intent or the intent to engage by that department. Yeah. So, um, and that, I mean, I haven't operationalised it because I'm, a, I'm basically a teaching focused academic. I, I don't, um, you know, research now isn't part of my role. So I haven't operationalised it, but I suspected that you would be able to operationalise that yeah. in terms of, okay, you've got a managerialist approach. Um, of a department. They're not interested in engaging. They're not interested in opening up comments on, on various channels. Um, that then dictates how the communicators do their jobs, yeah. which is being at the end of the line, being told what to do, produce this brochure, do this bit of media, as opposed to being involved early on in the chain. And uh, yeah, everyone everyone talks about that, all of those communicators. And still I know that communicators I, talk about that, the fact that they're, we're absolutely. not involved it, early it, on. It is, is still a problem. It's probably yeah. the biggest, most consistent theme that mm. you, you have when you speak to public sector communicators. Yes. Is this lack of understanding perhaps mm. of the benefit mm. that the policymakers c- could achieve mm. if in fact they, you know, invited the... Um, communicators into the uh, mm. in, into the room, mm. as opposed to issuing them with instructions after the heavy lifting has been done. Mm-hmm. And well, look, and that's got a lot to do with a, I think a whole range of factors. You know, an embedded view of uh, you know PR or, or comms as being something uh, kind of light and, and vaguely kind of um, spinish yes. that comes at the end, um, and that that's not necessarily uh, related to the, the personal attributes of the pe- communicators and their roles, but it's a general view of comms. Um, and and then I think there is a, um, a, a a legitimacy factor about communicators in 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 public sector departments that. Um, you know, they're not seen as having the the kind of um, what what's the word? Just having not not just legitimacy, but enough kind of grunt, if you like, to understand policy. To and, and I think that that's where with social media, where um, the engagement is very direct. Mm. Um, uh, that there's a lack of trust there to to um, allow communicators to manage that. Um, and it, I mean, it is it, it's a difficulty. So, you know, I, I guess we've come from the days where departments would take ages to approve uh, a media release. They'd take ages to, to approve, um, you know, the finely crafted words that, that go out to yeah. the populace, right? And then now we have a direct, um, very fast kind of engagement. So, so, you know, the role of communicators in that space is, is challenged 
Um, so they need to. So it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of being uh, having the right information, um, having the right kind of very fast, um, you know, more access access to the right people to to enable them to to get the um, approval and the um, you know support behind that kind of engagement, and that isn't always there. For, did you for did you land anywhere during your in in the PhD as to a solution as to how to solve hmm. that particular problem? No. Hmm. Um, no, I think that there is, uh, there is more work to do on that. Hmm. Um, it's a massively under-researched yeah. area, hmm. isn't it? Hmm. Why, why is that? Is it again? Well, look, I mean, it, again, when this was done, um, government communications was quite under-researched. I think a lot more work is being done in that space now. Uh, so there is, uh, so yeah, it's it's not, it's it's not a um, a desert as it was before. So, right. but still, there there is there is just a massive amount of research that could be done in this area. It's, yes. it's just fascinating, um, and I think that uh, the the big difference between, I guess, you know, the the way that communications is enacted or practiced in in government or in public sector departments, as opposed to the private sector. Um, as opposed to the community sector, uh, you know, it's 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 got a lot more challenges and a lot it's a lot more loaded, I guess. And um, I think there's a lot of responsibilities that government communicators kind of carry in terms of democratic engagement, yeah. if you like. Um, so so yeah, the, it is a it's it, it's a fascinating area and it's it's really yeah. A lot do, of scope. do you do you have any insight as to where um, where it may be heading? In terms of, mm. do you think the communicators are making some progress? Because I yes, know, I, do. I know, for example, say you know, the behavioural scientists have been able to find a place in policy and find mm. a place mm-hmm. as and really taking on some of the role that mm. communicators potentially mm. have been playing for some time. Mm. But they've been able to come in with their methodologies and frameworks and other things and being able to establish that credibility that you talk mm, about, mm, whereas mm. the comms people mm. still maybe don't have the tools that can earn them that credibility. Uh, mm, I, I think that there are some... Uh, I think there are some examples of very senior communicators who are doing great work um, and who are um, involved or a part of, um, you know, senior executive decision-making. Yep. Um, and I do think that um, because, I guess, of the the need for expertise in the area of digital and social. Uh, I know that it's a democratising tool, so everybody thinks that they can do it, Um, but at the same time, uh, communicators have a particular role to play in that space and it's a case of kind of uh, arguing that and and demonstrating that. Um, And I I do think that, I mean, I guess in in the... the examples that we've seen of, of good communications in the last kind of year or so, just I'm just thinking locally, um, I, I think that there are still challenges but I, I think that there are communicators doing great work mm. and um, and being recognised for that work organisationally, um, which is which is you know fantastic to see. Yeah. Mm. And, and what are some of the characteristics of that of that great work? Mm. Is it, it, it's, it it's relevant, it's understanding a problem, it's... Mm. Um, it's using a channel correctly? Uh, I think it's all those things, but I also think it's um, where 
the communications obviously isn't an add-on. It's it's entirely related to the organisational kind of intent or the organisation's, you know, strategic objectives. Um, so it's it's embedded in that process as opposed to. Um, you know, something yes, that comes the at the end. The end of the line. Uh, yes, and and uh, that it is uh, evaluated, that it's uh, that the return on investment is is clear. Um, so um, I, I think all of those things. I also think the the attributes of the senior communicators. Um, I, I think as as demonstrated or discussed a little bit in my thesis that there are there are attributes of of communicators who are you know they're agile, they're um, opportunistic. They um, they have a lot of uh, strong kind of personal attributes that uh, enable them to um, to engage at senior levels and to represent the comms function um, in yeah. a way that then is accepted and is respected. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's really that you know again there's a lot of work that's been done on on, on that kind of those aspects of communicators mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and what they can do to, to be at the, the table, yeah. to be at the decision-making table. Yeah. You mentioned one of the, the key things around uh, measurement and evaluation and, you know, that being a tool for credibility. Mm, mm. What do you see as the biggest challenges and what did you see as the biggest challenges around that when you were actually a senior practitioner in the mm. government? How, how hard was it? to be able to evaluate what it is that you um, were, were producing and, and distributing? Hard. Yeah. Um, because I, it requires money um, and it requires, uh, I guess, an agreement up front of, of a strategy that's accepted or approved or whatever and that has an evaluation component in it and quite often, uh, you know, as we know, kind of projects happen too quickly, you know, for that. Uh, but I think that uh, most of all it's the... Um, it's, it, it was the, 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 the commitment, the financial commitment that was required. Um, but I also and think by financial that commitment you're talking like largely around... To evaluation. You know, yeah, to, through surveys or through yeah, other... whatever yeah. it may be. Yeah. Whatever it may be. Um, and the time as well because yes. often it's, yes. okay, that's done. Mm. We've got, you know, 55 other things on the list so mm. let's keep moving. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that's what I, I found then. I, I do also think that maybe um, it may be a case of, I wouldn't say education, that sounds a bit kind of patronising, but in terms of uh, communicators being entirely across evaluation yeah. Yeah. And, and the tools uh, of evaluation, the processes, yeah. uh, you know, not everyone has the same knowledge of that. No. And um, so I think there's a there's a role there for professional associations and uh, for for educators, yeah. um, either through you know higher ed or, or you know short courses or whatever. There is a role for that. As and well, are you I think. putting a lot of time and effort into that in terms of the education of the students to make sure that they're understanding, for example, the Barcelona principles, where they mm. can look at you know outputs, outcome, mm, outtakes, yep, outcomes. Yep, yep, yep. You know? Yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, strategy is, is a part of, of all degrees. Um, so it's a part of uh, certainly the MarCom and the, the corporate and public comm degrees and evaluation is, is a part of that. Mm. Um, and then that would work through to like our capstone units, et cetera, where the students might need to, to, to you know, do a final uh, project with industry or whatever and 
evaluate it and report on that to the client. So, yeah, that, that's, that's all part of that. Mm. Um, I'll just One point I'll, I'll just go back to in regards to um, involvement of communicators in, at the, you know, at the decision-making Se- table. Yeah, the senior level, yeah. Um, one interesting thing that I, I did come across in the research for the PhD and that was echoed in, in a few of the um, interviews was that it, it seems that um, organisations that um, have been scalded and have had a, <laughs> a, a <laughs> have had um, you know bad reputational kind of things happen. It seems as if they then understand the value of communications, right? So we don't want to wish that on organisations, but those organisations that have had bad things happen to them, they then involve communicators who are then involved in um, early decision-making and, uh, you know, um, early stages of program development and policy development, et cetera, because they then understand the risks. The risks. Um, so it's it, and and that is borne out by research. Yeah. In fact, that um, that those organisations who have communicators um, in at the senior levels um, are those organisations who've who've been um, who've been burnt. But it, I think that's part that's part of the answer. I think that that you've just hit on really for communications people is that if you want a seat at the senior executive table, you mm. have to speak the language mm-hmm. of senior mm. executives. Yes. And that risk is mm. absolutely right, you know, risk mm. appetite and mm. how, how organisations deal with risk mm. um, is central to the consideration of the most senior people in any organisations because mm. that's the mm. way they go about mm. their, you know, they, they organise mm. their priorities and activities. Mm. And often you'll find so many risks could be addressed mm. by effective communication if it were in place. And as you say, often when it hasn't been addressed in that way, organisations have been scolded, mm. um, that they then think, oh, okay, maybe we, we should have done that. But I, I think that's one of the big challenges is to, is to reshape um, and reframe the benefit that communication uh, delivers through the language of mm. the senior executive such that you can be there talking about risk Speaking about um, governance, for example, mm. speaking about uh, benefits. These are the these simple changes that doesn't change exactly what it is that you're doing, but it's just shaping what you're doing in a way that makes sense to people who are looking at at organisations from a, a program point of view or a project mm. point of view. So they mm. understand. Oh, okay, right. So this is sure, where, sure. This is where your this is where your bit fits into the the broader Indeed. task that, that we're Indeed. taking on. So you can't just be a communicator. No. And you can't just talk the communications language. No. You need to actually exactly. understand the business of the organisation and then how that fits. And that actually was mentioned by a, a few of those senior managers, in fact, about their staff, that they were trying to um, encourage that um, understanding, if you like. So you couldn't just be hanging out there on the communicator's side saying, you know, well, we, you know, yeah. we're going to te- talk that language and uh, we know about communications. Yes. It, it doesn't kind of um, endear you to the organisation no. if you are separate like that. So mm. you need to understand the broader uh, context and landscape so that you understand where that fits in and makes sense for the organisation because, it, it, you, you know, you don't do strategies or, or you know, deliver certain kind of um, projects or events, whatever, because it's fun. You need you do it because it adds value or it serves a purpose for the organisation. Mm. So, and that's understanding the organisation and, you know, its business 
So, and I think that's another area of um, interest or, you know, would be great to, to look at um, different public sector organisations, whether they're policy, primarily policy, whether they're primarily, primarily service organisations or service delivery, um, and then how comms is different in those, you yes. know, in, enacted differently in those organisations or how differently it's perceived. Yes. You know, because there's different purposes, I guess. Yeah. For, no, for I, look, I, I mm. tend to agree with you. I think there's an enormous amount of work that is still to be done. Yeah. Um, just a final um, topic before I let you go, and it's this notion of trust uh, and mm. trust uh, of the public in de- democratically elected institutions. And it's not just an issue here in Australia. Obviously, it's in North America. It's in Europe. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's everywhere. What, what role do you see as the as public sector communicators in terms of addressing that trust deficit and improving the reputation of public sector organisations and, and how best can they go about doing that? Um, oh, well, I think their role is huge. Um, so I think that... Do you know um, Jim McNamara's work on the architecture of listening? Yes, yeah. I do. So I think that, that his, his great work there really speaks to the role of communicators in in that he found, and I don't know what um, whether he's, he's probably working on subsequent um, research to that and it came out a year or two ago, but he, he, he found that, you know, that the architecture of organisations were not geared up yeah. to, to listen yeah. um, and that communicators and marketers in those organisations were a part of that architecture. So they weren't doing their roles, you know, they weren't playing dialogic roles, you know, because it, it's not what they're asked to do. Yep. So um, so I guess that communicators can play an, a very important role but they, they probably need to change, um, you know, how they go about their, um, their, their, their business but that, you know, it's very hard to do in isolation in an organisation when that's not being asked of you. Yes. You know, um, so I guess that's where the legitimacy of the communicator comes in and the role of, you know, their role in in, in arguing the case mm. for, for dialogue and for transparency and for listening and for then changing the organisation from within. Um, so, you know, it, it, and it, it's not just them. It can't be just them. No. Just communicators because it's, it's just not going to happen if it's just... And they're, and they're big um, traditional rigid bureaucracies mm. in many cases mm. with very well-established, well-entrenched behaviours. Mm. Mm. And so making change yeah. is, is, is a challenge. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, but, yes, yeah, so I think that there is certainly a, a, a role um, for communicators to, to, to start that process or at least to be part of that process. Um, but it's, it's, it's a big call. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just so one final thing before you go. What's what's next? What's big? What's going to happen for you this year in terms of that education piece? What are, what are some of the next priorities that you've got to to really help the the students get ready um, and and be job ready so as mm. that when they emerge um, from studying at the University of Canberra mm. they'll be they'll be good to go. Well, I guess UC has a great reputation for producing kind of career-ready graduates anyway. We've always been a very practical kind of uni. Um, we are increasing our focus on work integrated learning. So so this year we have a, a new curricula across all of our programs in the faculty, um, including in the communication and media program. Um, so we are uh, vastly increasing our amount of work integrated learning. Um, but we're also, uh, I guess, starting from year one 
with um, professional orientation for students, um, getting industry, uh, you know, getting them talking with industry, industry come in and meet with them, they do speed dating, they ask them questions and it's all part of their assessment that they need to research the people that they're talking to, they need to research their questions, prepare them, be well presented, all that kind of stuff. Um, So that's from year one and um, that process also, um, you know, throughout that unit of exploring what their industry is about, talking with people, etc., um, helping their career thinking, it then, I guess, gives them an early insight into whether that's what they want to do. We don't want to leave it up to year three or yeah. year four for them to do an internship to find out that they don't want to do that, yeah. uh, you know, that they're actually in the wrong degree. Yeah. Um, so it starts from year one and then we have uh, work integrated learning kind of opportunities in year, year two and year three right. uh, and AR projects and their studios and yep. their, you know, for the, art, for the art students, uh, internships, etc. We do a lot of international stuff. Um, uh, academics take students um, abroad on a whole range of different programs, um, so uh, so yeah, we have we have that, and then we have the capstone units where students do really significant projects with industry. So it's a cohesive yeah. program, um, right from year one. So I'm quite excited about that. I think that uh, it'll be challenging, and it's it's going to be far more resource intensive than. Yeah. Um, um, than, you know, running kind of purely theoretical units, if you yeah. like. Um, but it's also a challenge to make sure that they're robust and they are, um, you know, we, we incorporate a lot of the theoretical stuff, the reflective stuff throughout so the students make the most of their opportunities and also so that industry benefit because otherwise, yep. you know, if industry don't benefit as well, well, then it's, it's just not sustainable. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's the win-win approach which is exciting and that we're working on. So, Excellent. Yeah, that's it. All right, Barb, well, thank you very much for Thanks, coming Dave. in and having a conversation about all of that. It's, it's fascinating, I think, that this, this notion of change being ever-present and how people are dealing with it, you know, there's this, you know, it, from the university point of view, you've, you've articulated that quite clearly, that that's a massive change in the way that you're going about preparing people. And I think that just reflects the massive change that's going on everywhere else uh, in this space and will continue to change, you know, both broadly in, in, in the, the, the wider context driven by technology and, and new technology such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, virtual reality, the, the new tools that are going to be there for communicators to be able to use to improve the way that they build that engagement. But ultimately, you know, essentially though, never losing fact that ultimately we're people and people are people and they communicate, you know, one you know, most effectively in, you know, by by being as human as they possibly can. So I just think it's fascinating. Um, unsettling as well, I've got, I've got to say, um, even from someone who's in the, the industry and dealing with it on a daily basis, that change is just something that is just always there. And you've just got to keep moving and keep changing and keep trying to find that place where you can add value and, and really deliver for for uh, public sector organisations as they deal with this issue of reputation and telling their stories more effectively. Because they're so full of good information and they you know public sector organisations do so much good, it is so critically important that their communication function be effective as it possibly can. So anyway, thanks to you, Barb, for coming in. Thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. I'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment... It's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.